Hello, everybody. Welcome again. Uh, this is uh, the Doomer Optimism podcast, but not only that, uh, it's really just a conversation with a bunch of people that I've admired for quite a while. Um, today we have Nora Bateson, Daniel Christian Wall, Joe Brewer, Kate Raworth. Um, I think that's enough said, really. I think uh, you all don't really need much introduction to a lot of our audience. Uh, I'm just really happy to be here and excited to, to talk with you all about um, regeneration, you know, relationships, um, culture, you know, healthy cultures, uh, all of that stuff. So perhaps maybe we could just get started if everyone just kind of wants to briefly introduce themselves and maybe with the prompt, what does regeneration, this word, which has a, become a popular word, what does this word mean to you? And it could be as broad or as narrow as you want. So why don't we start with you, Nora? Okay. Uh, well, hi, I'm Nora. And um, I, uh, I think for me, when we're talking about regeneration, what is important is that it's, um, it's in the soil, it's in the culture, it's in the, the epistemology, the way we look at the world, the way we think, the way we raise our kids, the way we are with our own bodies, um, the way we think about breakfast. And that it has to do with um, how per to participate in life and the relationships of life so that they produce more relationships that produce more life. So for me, it's very much at sort of, you know, not in the first round, not in the second round, but beyond and beyond and beyond. Um, I guess the, the terminology for that is that it's not at first order, but at nth order. But, you know, sometimes those terminologies don't feel like they're actually generating a lot of life. So let's just call it life making life making life. That's what it means to me. Yeah. Daniel? Wonderful. Thank you, Nora. That's because it, like what Nora just said, speaks to, I think, what's really important to remember when we talk about regenerative this, that, and the other, which too often gets framed as some sort of utopian future we yet have to construct rather than anchor in our lineage as life. First, as human beings who wouldn't be here had our ancestors not known how to be inhabitants of their ecosystem, the ecosystems that they that brought them forth, that they never saw as theirs, but they saw themselves as expressions of it. So Nora spoke to this life itself being regenerative and us simply by being alive, knowing that we have the capacity to, to realign with this pattern that is, is ancient um, and forever new because it's out of time, like, like Gary Snyder um, spoke to. So for, for me, it's at the core of um, life itself to create conditions conducive to life, to bring one's own patterns in alignment with the wider patterns of the context one, one is in, so we can fully express ourselves in service to that larger context. Do I pass this baton on to Kate? Kate, you want to go? Sure, and I'll pick that baton up right there. So if we are seeking conditions conducive to life, and how do we create patterns in our own lives that belong within that 
greater pattern then the way i think of it to extend on that is is how do we become regenerative by design and I, I come from the field of economics or at least i rebelled against the field of economics and i love to bring in this word design because economics was always trying to make itself about laws and there aren't laws it's about design so how do we bring intentionality to our lives our systems our economies our infrastructures so that they become regenerative by design so my response is whenever i hear the word regenerative i always want to, to bring in by design so that we show that we can create this with intention. And I'll hand on to Joe. Mm, what a lovely place to just invite the specific definition that Macharana and Varela gave, which I know all of us here know of autopoiesis, the idea of a self-organizing system to be able to create the conditions to express itself in a continual ongoing and unfolding manner. So it's a dynamic process of reproducing the conditions of being alive moment to moment. I think is very beautiful and powerful of how that invokes values and norms and biases and preferences. And as uh, Andreas Weber talks about the feeling of aliveness and the desire, the organism level desire to continue being alive. That the desire and the hunger for life is inherent to the phenomenology of regeneration. As living beings, we have a felt experience of wanting to be alive. It's very important. And I'd like to start bridging us toward types of human culture that are not called regenerative, but actually they are in a way. And so extractive civilizations that, for example, have agriculture that depletes their base of nutrients and soils and eventually collapse, we might say those are extractive economies and they're not regenerative but actually boom bust cycles of you know, bacteria in a Petri dish or lily pads on a pond or lots of ecological examples also are regenerative in a way. And this opens a space that's very interesting to say that all expressions of human culture are subsets of biology. So all of them are living systems. So there's always some regeneration in them. And this is very interesting. So war can have regeneration in it. Destruction of ecosystems can have regeneration in it in a way. And this is where uh, Kate's suggestion of using the concept of design or the perspective of design, intentional and guided evolution, directional preferential future, going in a direction that reproduces the conditions of being alive is basically there are some human cultures that select for their own death. And there are some human cultures that select for their perpetuations of life. And this is where we can draw the boundary between many civilizations and many indigenous cultures. And design means it's about a choice or about a collective choice or an emergent path. I think that's a very interesting element of this, that regeneration resides even in the most destructive life forms. But for us to be intentional designers of regeneration is for us to recognize where those boundaries are. And so um, just wanted to open that ontological space, because I know that that's someplace we're all comfortable with here, to begin to explore how a self-destructive civilization can also be regenerative, but in what way, and in what way do we guide ourselves from it with the parts of it that were always regenerative? And so I'll pass that back to maybe Jason to direct us to the next round. I'd like to dig in more to the phenomenology of regeneration 
uh, like what this feels like, because a lot of times we talk about the need for a paradigm shift. Danielle Meadows famously in her in her leverage points paper, you know, listed paradigm shifts and the capacity to transcend paradigms as her top leverage points. Um, what does I want to dig more into what that feels like, especially for those of us who come from recent lineages that are not regenerative, that we weren't necessarily raised, at least, you know, fully, maybe partially as Joe, as Joe mentions, but um, the expectations that we had growing up, that, you know, it was within a different paradigm. And so, especially for those of us who have to find it, like find it again, right, that we weren't native, we weren't indigenous to regenerative paradigm, but we're rediscovering it. And all the messiness that entails having a foot in one world, while having a foot in, you know, the, the world that we're, we're trying to cultivate, what does that feel like? And maybe if any of you want to just express how it's felt like for you, that would be, that would be great. Daniel, you're on mute. I think Nora, Nora should sh share what it's like to grow up not like that, because as far as I understand, you didn't grow up like that, Nora. You grew up at Lindisfarne hanging out, listening to people talking about e Epoch B and, and at Esalen um, and, and those places. So, so like, what is it like to live from the start seeing that there's a narrative that is to be questioned, that most of the culture that Around, around you is living in. So, sorry if I hijacked that. <laughs> Not to put me on the spot or anything. Um, I, you know, I, I think I didn't know. Okay, when people ask you what was it like to grow up the way you did, it's sort of like, well, it's exactly like my childhood. That's what it was like. And it's really hard to, <laughs> to know how that's different. Um, but it was really different. And I started to realize that at some point in my life. Um, certainly going to school was at a weird angle to being home. You know, there were very different cultural expectations at school than there were at the dinner table. And certainly different kind of conversations. So I think that I was learning how to be in the code, you know, of, of mainstream Western culture. And um, I needed to know how to be in that code. And I was also learning how to see that it was a code and not what was real. So the question for me started off really, you know, kind of, you know, with my mashed yams and bananas of, you know, what are you perceiving? Is this what's real? What's real? How do you know? How do you know whether what you're perceiving is what you're perceiving? And what are the ways in which you're perceiving it? So, you know, for me, I think when we talk about um, regeneration, I, I, I think it's really important to remember that um, all the, the senses that come together to form what we call cognition, um, are not just the development of the individual trying to learn how to be in their world, but a collective uh, language and, um, and kind of agreements about what is, is. And, and I'm really not being tricky there. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I think as 
as time goes on, I'm more and more realizing that we're holding each other trapped in the existing systems. And so for me, the question of regenerative relationship really starts not with how do I improve myself? That's very eugenics oriented, right? Self-improvement version, fix the unit. Um, but what, what can, who can I allow you to be in relationship with me? Right. And there it is. There's that second order piece of, it isn't just about me doing all the right things and being groovy. That's simply not even remotely enough. It's the, it's much more about what, what does my participation in our ecology of communication and relationship allow for in terms of um, our mutual learning moving into different ways of perceiving our world. I, you know, I, I am really very concerned and cautious around the idea of creating kind of models and rule sets that we can just kind of download um, and uh, that that the if if there's not a kind of a readiness underneath that that it's going to just be a revolution and you can't insert readiness with education it is not a matter of education it's a matter of actual perceiving each other and breakfast and you know previous generations it's a it's a perception shift so for me that's really um kind of I know that wasn't really what you asked, Jason, but somehow that's what I need to respond with. Yeah, and if I could maybe follow that, um, getting closer to Jason's question, and it's actually very related to what you were saying, Nora, as I'd like to share the story of what it's been like for me to develop an intimate, like a lover's relationship with land. The way that someone can say, lay down in bed with their lover and be held and have intimacy and share vulnerability and share pleasure and excitement and you know that intimate space. Because in the last year, as I was going through a separation in my marriage and finding my place into deep healing of childhood traumas, the metaphorical woman who held me was Mother Earth, not metaphorical, although obviously metaphor is involved in the human mind, but directly expressed in my relationship to a piece of land that I was pulling grass, digging water retention ponds, opening uh, niches for native seeds to come in and grow native bushes, which would bring in the pollinator insects and filling this kind of um, flourishing. I love the word in Spanish, la florescencia, this, this vibrance and energy that comes with being held within a living system coming to life, of life being born in the land. And for my body, who is experiencing a lot of pain and social isolation with respect to humans, but very much communalism or communal belonging with land in place. And then realizing that I could reconnect that back to my human relationships, but only after sort of um, doing a little biofeedback session on my own neurophysiology, my own stress responses to be able to do so. And so there's something incredible about the human body as a sense-making apparatus, a set of sense-making organisms that are able to interact relationally in this way that I now understand how to be a lover 
or to live in expressions of love or be the embodiments of love relationships with land directly. And that all human bodies are capable of this. So there's something interesting about that, about what it means to rediscover belonging in the human body as connected to the communal space of ecology, um, which I think builds very nicely from what Nora is saying. <laughs> Daniel, okay. Did you go? Well, it's, it's lovely to hear Joe reflect on this. I've, I've just watched your, your journey over the years, sort of um, with the occasional post on, on Facebook, and and there's so much resonance with that. And then also realizing how, depending on context where where we at, how like a lot of my path has been trying to dance in that process and try to do too many things at once. And so I actually deeply know what you're speaking about, but it's been glimpses over the last year and a half, sometimes three weeks at a time, but um, mainly trying to steal those moments from the context of nuclear family dysfunctionality in an affluent, part of the world and then seeing but through that accessing the compassion that even in my hyper privileged situation to to live all those stresses has helped me to really reconnect to see even how, how your situation was enabled by privilege difficult and hard personal work that you did well and enabled by privilege and to think about all these other people out there that that don't have the privilege to even have a conversation like like we're having and and how to in the context of what we sort of know what's coming respond with integrity is something that i find at the moment has me has me sort of a little bit puzzled um, and i i I've, i find through the last 20 25 years i've sort of breathed in and out from remembering that my name has a sort of biblical root in the prophet that saw the black black stone rolling in a babylon um in terms of um the the daniel calling this tower is about to fall um but then i called that in 1999 and it hasn't fallen yet because it's falling in slow motion um but how do we live in this falling tower in slow motion that is now accelerating and how do we acknowledge that all levels of work are important like um for example kate's wonderful work with donut economic action labs in, in inviting communities in cities to rethink at the scale of cities and weaving themselves back into the hinterland like the, i just recently was on the transition podcast uh, on a transition conference of the UK and, and a guy from Liège was there who has helped to create a community project of over 20 cooperatives and community supported agriculture, creating a food belt around the city of Liège. 
And then, then at the same time, there's this dynamic that there are people up on soapboxes saying, don't you see, it's all about collapse. And, and if you don't face collapse, then, then you're ignoring a key scientific fact and, and you're part of the problem, not part of the solution. I think it's not that we don't know what's collapsing, but we're putting ourselves in different parts of the tower trying to affect the conditions when it's all on the ground. And what you're doing is the really deep inner community long-term, we'll start healing this watershed and it doesn't matter if we finish it, somebody will. And that's really the deep work we now need to do. The, the kind of planting trees we know in whose shade we will not sit. And yeah, and so for me, it's interesting because I, for some reason thought that the, the main theme of this was this really kind of raw space of how do we face that yes, we've been in collapse of the era of empire of power over for hundreds of years. And if we want it or not, we're in the beginning of a planetary era if, if we make it through the eye of the needle. And how do we make it through the eye of the needle? And 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 I mean, Kate, how do you? Because you you're the most bridging into like now now, I'm sure governments call you up and say, talk to us about donut economics and and, and all of that, but they're still so trapped in a narrative that you understand is completely um, mistaken around the kind of growth imperative, and that's the only way we can serve our people. How how do you in in that collapsing Tower of Babel position yourself? Yeah, great. Um, I really like that you brought the conversation to this. Um, and so I'm going to use it and use another metaphor. Like if people, I don't know, say all hands on deck, you know, the ship is going in the wrong direction. So is everybody going to stand in the same place on deck? We don't need everybody doing the same thing at the same time. There are, I often say this is big team work. We need a big team. Uh, an ecosystem of people holding many, many different places in this space. And so where do you find yourself when in that moment of crisis and what role do you find yourself playing or what role do you believe you can play? It might not be what you think is the most important role to be played, but there might be somebody else doing that. There might be somebody else holding that. Somebody else is holding the catastrophe, the doom, the, somebody else is locking on to a, an oil rig, somebody else is inventing a new startup. So where do you find yourself? Uh, and as you said, Daniel, to Joe, you know, tend to that where you are, this watershed. And, and you just say, well, this is what I'm going to hold here. Like somebody on a ship, my, my job is to hold this rope. So I'll just hold this rope really well. And somebody else is in the crow's nest and calling a direction. And they know that that is their job and not to catch the main sail, to call the direction. So where do you find yourself? Um, this is the way I experience it, and I experience it as what, what role can I most usefully play? And because I've found myself in this world, I, th I think I didn't come into this with the intentionality of Daniel saying, right, I'm going to focus myself around this work of regenerative futures for example I found myself I doodled a diagram it looked like a donut people responded to it in a way I never imagined I I, I wrote it I, I, I realized for me the, the power of verbal and visual framing and I went back on all my 
old economics textbooks and realize the visual framing that they are based on expansion, on accumulation, on acquisition. So how can I be part of framing in another way? And that that has traction and that is appealing to people. So I'll hold this space because this is where I find myself when, when the music started, the music didn't stop. It, it's, you know, the music is in a direction of decline. I'll hold this space and I'll hold a space of possibility. And I'll speak to the possibility of meeting the needs of all people within the means of the living planet and, and thriving nature. And even on days when I don't feel that possibility, I'm going to speak to that possibility because I feel this is the role I can most usefully play. So that's the way I'm positioning. And that's the way I see what I'm doing. And yes, we do have governments, city governments or, or national or getting in touch with us. And I'll just add one more thought here. For me in the work that we're doing at Donut Economics Action Lab, our first principle is we, we go where the energy is. Uh, we never knock on shut doors. So we've never once tried to lobby or persuade or convince anybody to use any of the tools or the concepts that we are offering. Why? Why? You know, that puts you in a kind of push mode. You know, you're pushing at someone. Why would you do that? Because it's so much more thrilling when somebody calls you up, knocks on the door and says, I, as a, as a, person or a change maker in the context in which I live, whether it's Curaçao or Mexico City or Amsterdam or Brussels or Barcelona, say so I sitting where I sit in the context of which I am, this looks useful to me. So I want to draw it into my world. And those are the people we're connecting with and working with. And some some will some will run and, and some won't run. And, and you you go with what evolves and what emerges there. But that's what that's what gives me the energy and the clarity of I, I'll keep standing where I'm standing and keep playing this role that I'm playing. Hand over to one of you. Well, maybe I'd, I'd love to, to build off um, your, your donut model, um, Kate, uh, in, in terms of when we're thinking about planetary boundaries and social foundations, and we're trying to find the sweet spot in the middle, it occurs to me that how we think about these things and also for example, what is the carrying capacity of the earth? We might have some ideas, but we also know, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that through regenerative action, we can increase compare, uh, carrying capacity, right? We can create more life than was possible before through this kind of feedback loop, reinforcing feedback loop of regeneration. At the same time, when we're thinking about social foundations, we can, question what we value in terms of what is the good life, right? How much do we actually need to consume versus how much do we need to love each other? How much do we need to take care of each other? Um, you know, most of us need clean water. Most of us uh, need to eat nutritious food. Um, there are a few basics, um, but in terms of how we think about the, the planetary boundaries and the social foundations, and trying to move in towards that sweet spot, um, how do we think about where those boundaries are? Um, and I'm, I'm curious, there might be different views here. So I'm curious to, to explore that a little bit. Hold on, the fox is at my chickens. I'll be back in a second. <laughs> Metaphor of the century, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, and I'd, I'd love to just offer a little context in this that uh, 
I've learned from William Catton in his book, Overshoot. And in my book, I only produced one graphic. And, and that graphic is four different conceptual models of carrying capacity. So that most people think the first one is what carrying capacity is when it's actually the fourth one. And it's that they, for many people who don't really understand complex evolving systems, they think the carrying capacity is a fixed number. Like it's just, there's a line and if you cross it, you're beyond your carrying capacity. Uh, but because there are like, if you think in ecology, you can have R strategists and K strategists, these basically different ways for an organism to engage its environment. And humans are a very adaptive species. So we can shift from one technology or one resource to another. And in so doing shift our landscape of carrying capacity. And so we have a, a way that carrying capacity becomes shiftable based on kind of socio-technological organization. But then when you add overshoot into it, where you, whatever the carrying capacity happens to be, you go beyond it, such as using 200 million years of dead sunlight in the form of fossil fuels to temporarily exceed the carrying capacity, that the question becomes, what do you do in a landscape that is not able to regenerate for what is being depleted? That the rate and capacity of regeneration is below the rate of depletion. Now, which is where the original term drawdown comes from. Drawdown is the drawdown of non-renewable resources and before project drawdown changed the framing a bit. And so what's interesting is to ask ourselves, what are the drawdown strategies when the overshoot itself degrades the regenerative capacities? Which means, yes, we can grow regenerative capacities and raise the carrying capacity later, but not back beyond whatever the planetary's maximum capacity is. It's that we've already lowered it by being an overshoot and degrading more quickly. And, um, and I think this is really interesting that the dynamism of it, the fact that it is an adaptive response means that how early and how quickly we shift to regenerative practices really matters, which is why it was really important in the 1980s to have climate action and really important that we didn't take those actions and there are already built in consequences and similar things for land system changes of de destroying ecosystems. And biodiversity loss is slow to recover. To produce new species is, is slow, at least in mass at the biosphere scale. You know, to evolve a mammal is you know, one to 10 million years. Um, so for these larger complex organisms. And so that's where hysteresis affects and other concepts of, um, of basically built in memory and inertia of the system become really important. And so I just want to invite the nuance, because all of us here have pretty nuanced understandings of the ecology that's involved and the systems thinking that's involved. How can we together um, shed light on this for, for others who are listening? Like, how can we teach each other? And then also, how can we shed light for others who are listening? Told the nuance, the carrying capacity is not a fixed number, but it still does fit within physical and biological constraints. And so, um, so we hold that. And then what do we do? And I, I think all of us are advocating and pushing for more regeneration sooner. Um, and then how do, we, how do we hold that for people's personal life changes as they struggle with these situations? I've missed a bit. I was chasing a fox. <laughs> or if you want to go, I, I, could, I could follow on, but if you want to go. Um, 
I'll, I'll throw something in and it's a twister. Okay. So then that'll be, yeah. You want to go next? I would just like to briefly follow on from, from where, where Joe was at. Because, okay, go ahead. Um, I find it really fascinating. I'll just share this with you in the chat. I don't know how we're going to then share it later with, with um, other folks, but let me just see everyone here. Um, this is not a terribly good article, but this is a New York Times article from 1974. And it, it, it some New York Times um, journalist joined a meeting at Lindisfarne that Nora's father was at. And um, Jonas Sock was at the, the inventor of the polio vaccine. And this is 1974. And they're talking about um, the work that Jonas did after he invented the polio vaccine. Um, he, he did a study on EPOP-B, where he basically spoke to what Kate is speaking about, that we need to get off the exponential growth curve into the logistics curve. We need to level out away from this overshoot. Um, and their conclusion in, and I always get my numbers a little bit wrong here, I think at the early beginning of the 80s, they concluded that if by 1995, we would have not fundamentally restructured the patterns of the systems that we're embedded in, in Western industrial growth society, that by 2050, billions would die. And Joe, I've heard, heard you say this in a kind of quite matter of fact way, more stating the scientific evidence. And, and every time I hear you say it, there's something in me that, that shudders. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of trying to explore in myself whether it's my own willingness to, to face the dimension and significance of that little sentence full on enough and tested against my own integrity to know how to, to be in this world, if that's a fact. But then there's this other bit that also says, is it, is it all about um, that linear scientific prediction? Like even the, the kind of part of the scientific spectrum that is now saying climate change has progressed into um, a point beyond return where we're basically running down the system and we're, we're literally having to face that future generations will be generations of a dying species on a planet that will fundamentally transform and not support life forms such as ours. That's what I hear some of them say. Um, and while that facing that mortality is maybe cooking us enough to, to actually mature quickly enough to make another future possible, I need to hold, just as Kate was saying, saying that her role, I need to hold that that other future is possible some, somewhere in the end. And, and it doesn't mean I can't go there scientifically and look at the data. I, I remember Jim Lovelock telling me this 20 years ago at Schumacher College, that he thought that 10% of the current population levels are likely at the end of this century. Um, but yeah, for, for me, it's, it's that. And, and I also hear, Nora, you, your work is, is and, and your father's work and what you were speaking to about the, the porridge and the mashed bananas um, is, is about daring to go where Joe was also going, mentioning Maturana and Varela to some extent, 
of how do we bring forth a world differently if we fundamentally pay different attention to relationships, to the warm data in between, the holding um, predictability a little more lightly, holding controllability and knowledge, certainty in complex dynamic systems lightly enough to find in that design, because that's the, the like briefly, I'll just to add to that because Kate meant brought in design. And I've, I've had a lot of energy lately coming from or regenerative design because of the, the RSA medal and all that. And I, I really feel that when we put regenerative and design together in the way that most people understand design, um, we're in danger because um, most people are taught in design schools to see designing as problem solving. And problem solving is abstraction into ever more abstract problems and data. And really the, the deep lesson that I get from Carol Sanford and the Regenesis Group lineage of regenerative practice is no, no, no. When, when you want to handle this complexity, look at it with the specificity. And that's what your processes, Kate, are doing at, in each place that invites you in. You're saying, okay, let's use the donut in this place with you where your energy is at. And that's precise. And I think that's where Joe is taking people on the Regenerators Network and his more online-based work of inspiring other people to do bioregional work. But, but I, I, I sense that Nora has... Like, where's where's your sense in, in all this in terms of? I think if we that, did look at the science data, we're fucked. But yeah. there's something beyond that, no? Well, there's the premises, and the I think the thing that we have to be really, really careful of is um, not falling into the same trap again. And again, thinking that what we're doing is the right thing. And so we have to do more of it. Right. And, and right there, you actually see the thinking that is um, deeply intrinsic with industrialism. And this idea of productivity, of efficiency, of, of you know, if, if some is good, more is better. And, you know, that this is, a, is a, 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 a perception that is the perception that got us here in the first place. And it is so tempting to turn to it when we think what we're producing is life. And um, so I, I see that there's a real danger um, in not recognizing the beauty and the necessity of the small, undersized, not very juicy, a little bit bitter apple on the tree. And when we try to grow the big, beautiful, juicy, juicy apples, um, we're back in that same eugenics mentality of what is the perfect apple? How is the perfect thing? And this is trouble. Um, so I think, uh, we have just all sorts of things happening on the farm here today. The dog just walked in and threw up on the floor. The fox is in the yard. We've had a massacre outside. There's all things happening at my house today. Um, life is weird. And somehow, you know, somewhere between the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, we got caught in some epistemologies 
that have been trying to clean it up. And, um, you know, I, it's not very long ago that we were seeing people say things like, we just have to plant lots of trees, you know, but that does not an ecology make. A lot of trees does not make a forest, right? So, so, and meanwhile, I mean, just to sort of point to it, planned obsolescence is still carrying on, right? Um, COP26, they didn't really even mention all the money that's stuck offshore. Um, what it really means to begin to think about even ideas of development, all right? So, you know, the idea that it's the individual that develops and pointing to uh, these aspects of um, the way we perceive ourselves and the world. And what does what do we mean when we say better? And is it possible to think in terms of better without making linear mistakes? Like, that's a serious question. If you have an uh -huh. idea of what better is, how do you keep from getting into the linearity of producing that? Because that linearity is going to actually truncate other transcontextual processes that may not look like anything like the thing you think you're looking at and so you won't see it because it doesn't look like that and if you're not looking for it you won't find it and the next thing you know it's whoops something pops off over here and this is kind of like basic systems thinking but i think for me the biggest piece of systemic work that's missing is abductive process and this is the piece that really it just gets lost and it gets lost because it's not convenient. It doesn't fit with the idea that the machine, that the system is actually something like a machine. And if you just input in all the right places, you can make it go. And we use words like functional. All right. And and this is where um, I, you know, what's a what is a functional family, right? You have a functional child. Yeah, my toddler is super functional. <laughs> <laughs> My my partner's functional. Like the last thing on earth I want is a functional family, right? Hopefully everybody's growing and changing, and their weirdness is increasing, and you know there's possibilities coming out of that. So I think for for me and my work, what I'm seeing is I'm really seeing the depth of these deep patterns of thinking um, that uh, I really question. And I know, you know, even the notion of intentionality is tricky, right? How do you know that your intention isn't infected with existing systems trickery? And my guess is it is. I'm sure that my intentions are. I'm positive that they are. I catch them all the time being tricky with me. So, so I don't know who among us is outside the matrix enough to actually trust that their intentions are beyond the reach of perpetuating existing systems. That maybe wasn't the thing you wanted to hear, but I think we have to say it. Can I jump out and Nora ask then, then what should we do or what do we do when we find ourselves in circumstance, whether we're a 
a mayor of a town or a neighbor in a community uh it, because i i i take on everything you say and then so where do we go with that what do we do i have something to say on that um because we're starting to develop a, a patterning of spreading centropic agroforestry here in barichara and ernst gosh who's a swiss botanist who moved to brazil some 45 years ago and regenerated 450 hectares of land, reversing desertification, creating a lot of biodiversity, cultivating climax ecosystems. And the key insight of syntropic agroforestry is that the primary mode, uh, by the way, I'm gonna almost be quoting you, Daniel, on this, because uh, you've written several articles to this extent, that the primary mode of, of development for an ecosystem is through the interdependencies of symbiosis and cooperation. And so by understanding how a forest ecology achieves complexity through its interdependent cooperation, you can design for it, which means you can encourage it. You can give you know, symmetry breaking at a system level. You can give directional bias. And what Centropic Agroforestry does is it combines species with knowledge of how the species fit in and relate to their place in ecological succession to help ecological secession move toward climax, to move toward the greatest biodiversity and resilience that the system can achieve. And this is something that I think is really powerful is that this addresses the role of intentionality in a, in a way that is really important, which is by having understanding of systemic interdependencies, we can become in a way like gardeners of complexity and gardeners of cooperation and gardeners of resilience and gardeners of biodiversity, but it's a very different kind of gardening, which is really important to say, because the control theory of how we control it is basically to create the conditions for the interactions to take themselves away, to take themselves in the direction of a mature ecosystem. I remember last year when I was starting to pull grass, this invasive brachiaria, and uh, which strangles out all the native bushes and shrubs, and I'd already been bothered for a few years that most people I saw saying, I do reforestation, and I'm using my finger quotes, because they have trees and grass. Forests don't have two levels. They have more levels than that. But as soon as I pulled the grass and helped cultivate the soil and then weeded out that invasive grass as it was coming back alongside all the native bushes and shrubs, the complexity of the understory of the forest was emerging. And it did need assistance because Brachiaria did not co-evolve in this place, and that grass is super competitive and super intense. But with human assistance, the opening of niches and the flourishing of biodiversities can very much be intended and achieved. And so I think there's something very interesting about models like centropic agroforestry that do this really well. And to ask ourselves, what does it mean to practice being part of such a system? Because one of Ernst Gosch's design principles was we're not trying to create conservation in the absence of humans. We're trying to design for the permanent inclusion and interwoven nature of human presence. The humans don't drive themselves extinct, but also the flourishing of the ecosystem allows for humans to be included for the long term. And so it's just an interesting way of you know, bringing us into another part of this conversation as we're, as we're navigating the landscape. So I'd like to share that here. Thank you, Andre.
I, I, uh, I think Kate, that there's what you're asking is two questions at the same time. And so I think it's really important that we pay attention to both of them. One of them is how does the mayor continue being a mayor? How do we continue to pay rent and, and be in the system that we're in? Because in order to do anything, we somehow have to exist now. And um, so that's one, one part of what you're asking, and it's critical. Um, but it's also critical that that, that that question be in some sort of more lively relationship with the other question, which is what happens if we aren't actually um, approaching this in the same way, perceiving the world in the way that we used to perceive it, and none of those things matter. So um, what I'm saying is that the premises upon which we are living include things like success and identity and progress and improvement and um, material wealth and and all of those things um, exist in in this and and are fed by the same type of reductionism that is in also in a good deal of ecological work right now and and where we're in danger is not having our perception keen enough to be able to spot it and say, oops, here we go. This, this one is falling into that linearity again. So it, I guess what I perceive is that it, you're asking, what should we do? Um, and one of the things that I'm noticing um, is that when perception shifts with a group of people, you don't have to ask that question. The what to do happens. Um, it's a little like Joe was just describing in the forest. When people are making relationships and, and, and they're in a different set of ways of making sense of their world, their idea of what to do, the, the whole selection of what are the options changes. And, and so, um, and meanwhile, people have to pay rent and we have to um, actually address this process of living in two worlds at the same time, but not get caught, not get tricked that that one of them is realer than the other. Um, essentially, I, I'm very cautious about the hubris of thinking, you know, we know better. We know how to fix nature. Like that scares the hell out of me. I, I simply do not trust human beings to know that. It, yeah. To me, this is, this is really bringing up exactly the kind of bridge that is so important, like in this sort of metaphor of holding different parts of the ship, also holding different parts of the, the conversation. And, and they're all important. Um, like for me, that, that's always the, the important bit when we talk about ecosystems engineering design regeneration is is the humility um having danced with with regenerative agroforestry for the last eight eight months myself here on this piece of land that i'm the custodian of um the way i understand what ernst is doing is is to 
pass it back to the unpredictable, uncontrollable regenerative force of life that is, life is, in a kind of physical sense, life is syntropy on a planet that has caught life. Life is a planetary process. Not, and then this is very related to what you were pointing at, that this whole notion of individual development is, is dangerous. Flip it around and you understand that life is first and foremost a planetary process and it, and it becomes very different. So how, how, do we, how do we work with the both and of this? That, um, and, and I think this ultimately relates to beautifully to the question that Jason kicked us off with, where you mentioned Donna, uh, Donna Meadows' work on these two papers, leverage points, you see the two versions of that. The second one was going beyond paradigms. But then just after she died, the whole Earth Review published an excerpt from what later became her post-homeless book, which was a small little piece that was called Dancing with Systems. And, and it's a fundamental shift in worldview. And that's where um, maybe not going as far as Nora is inviting us to go. And I think that's so critical to actually, and, and it meets with like, Joe, you work with Lakoff and the, the mimetic framing, like how, how strongly we're just captured in concepts. Um, certainly something that I will take as a learning and, and a keep checking. Um, but back to da Dana Meadows, um, also because we're 50 years on from limits to growth and we're still not learning the lessons. Uh, um, Dana first took 10 years of practice of seeing, no, it's not the paradigm. It's not about educating people in, don't you see, this is the right way, just follow it and everything will be fine. It doesn't work. Uh -huh. So she added another level, but she was still within the leverage point framing of saying, um, oh yeah, but if you go beyond paradigms and you hold the different paradigms and you speak multiple languages and you weave between the different stakeholders, you can achieve more. And then she realized doing that work you become a different being. It's not about prediction and control. It's about human relationship. It's about seeding memes. It's about asking these powerful questions that Nora is bombarding us with. Yeah? I've, I've written a couple of them down. Uh, um, I mean, that you could sit under a tree for a day with those questions. Um, and yeah, how how do we dance with systems? Like I, everybody, I'll encourage you look look up that article because it's it's all about getting the beat. It's it's not about like it fully has the humility. It it surrenders to not knowing. It surrenders to uncertainty. It's the difference. Like right now, as we speak, there is a part of a possible way of being and seeing the world, Nora, of me that is saying I can't believe that common land is on Mallorca talking to all the land rest restoration and sea restoration stakeholders and i'm not with them all week but no i'm taking care of myself and the very fact that they're talking to each other has been subtle seeding over the last six years that they began to knew each other knew off each other that had they had zoom calls that didn't go anywhere that they had intense to, and it's not my work and i know my peace in knowing that they wouldn't be out there doing what they're doing if I'd just done nothing. And it's a subtle way of dancing with a system that is saying, do you know this? Have you seen this? Have you tried on this language? The guy from who used to run IUCN found it really useful. And like knowing what might be the hook in 
to somebody in the system, not to predict and control them, not to say, I know better. Like it's almost the learning. The other part of me is saying, wonderful, I'm not there. They're having these amazing conversations and they're finding their way into this story so I can meet their story when I meet them, rather than feeling, oh, right when all of this was cooking up and the MOOC was reaching 91 countries and 1,900 people, thanks to Nora posting about this MOOC at ETA. Um, I'm ill and I can't handle any of these systems, intervention systems, design systems, building resilient systems, all this. But, but for me, all of those conversations are important. They're all part of holding different parts of the, the sailing ship and, and helping people in their own developmental journey. So like, I, I'd love to hear you on this, like how do we qu question upstream enough, which is what you, you do so beautifully and allow people to enter the conversation through a door like thriving places in Amsterdam and, and just begin to talk at that local level um, and actually do warm data without have, ever having heard about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's what that's where we are. Uh, so, you know, in a way, it's everywhere. Um, the possibilities are actually everywhere. You know, in just like everybody in this room has kids. Mm. And I, uh, here's an example. I'm living with my 93 year old mother right now. And also my 25 year old son and his girlfriend are living in one of our studio cabins. And we've got three generations living together. Okay. So now I think attention to intergenerational communication and expectations, what is said, what isn't said, what's assumed uh, is absolutely vital to this. So, you know, I, I noticed um, when I had my own kids that when my dad was alive and I was 12 when he died and he knew he wasn't going to be around when I was an adult. Um, so we talked about that. We knew, we knew. And, and but he never, ever, not even once said to me, when you grow up, dot, dot, dot. He never did that. So the conversations that we had, the mutual learning we were in was about nourishing those possibilities in me that he knew he wasn't going to be there to see and he better not project anything into that I was going to then have to track back into my relationship with him. Did I complete his wish? Did I rebel against his wish? Did I, right? Um, because those things that our, our parents say, they they rest deeply within us in terms of what are the expectations of being an individual, of, of even perceiving yourself in this world we live in? You know, like you got to learn to do the dishes because you're going to go out there. You have to have ambition. You have to have discipline and determination. You have to, you know, this stuff. 
comes with subtexts. And the subtexts are absolutely rife with messages about staying in the existing patterns. So, so that's, that's just a little example of the fact that these messages of, of where we are in relationship to allowing each other to live differently, right? This is a huge piece. How do we, the big question that is of my work right now is how do we nourish the flexibility we don't yet know we need, right? And that example of my father's, I think, is a really good one of he he knew he wasn't going to be there. If you know you're not going to be there, what do you give your kid? And, um, you know, it's questions like that that start to point out to us that, you know, you got to get your kids out the door and into their fifth grade class. Okay. But give them something, some talisman of knowing that fifth grade is actually bullshit. <laughs> And that the power structures, the authoritarian structures, the shape of the classroom is bullshit. And that, you know, what's not bullshit is learning. But the last thing they're really learning is fifth grade material. What they're really learning is how to be in these relationships that will be their employment relationships, their spousal relationships, their friend relationships, relationships to, it's an abductive process, right? So it's reflective everywhere. And, um, There's no way to stop reproducing these patterns if we're not, if, you know, if we keep building them into our intergenerational expectations. Yeah, along these lines, the focus of uh, Earth Regenerators from its very inception was how to create social supports to help people change themselves and change each other to live more regeneratively. And, um, there's a whole body of research in cultural scaffolding and how it works that uh, maps into many different fields. And what's interesting is that there are a lot of people who sit in frustrated places because of their isolation, where their isolation is a sense of how they see the world is different from those around them. And that they don't know how to take actions that have entailments that have uh, consequences in their web of relationships. And so as we've been practicing in the last year and a half, um, how to scaffold a developmental process that in eight weeks, we've built lasting lifetime relationships that continue to be open-ended and mutually supportive. They're based in two fundamental psychological capacity, capacities, which is the regulation of emotions and psychological flexibility. And cultivating these, which is what the pro-social framework is all about and there's massive bodies of research showing this is the foundation of living a, an adaptive and successful life by all kinds of measures, because it basically becomes an internal scaffolding within the person while scaffolding between the people. But the part that's often missing is the social scaffolding part, which is we become more flexible in relating to ourselves while relating to others. But how do we do that without an intrinsic subtext of control there or an intrinsic subtext of this is the right behavior and this is the wrong behavior. That's easy. Eleanor Ostrom's eight core design principles, which are explicitly built in, which is their sovereignty and the cultivation of more. 
And so this is done continuously within the- I know, the but my, like my five-year-old isn't gonna- My five-year-old is doing that. it. I've been I mean, cultivating my daughter's pro-social capacities and she's able to co-create with sovereignty at a five-year-old's level. So that's the same. I guess, I guess, you know, I certainly grew up in a space where I was learning to be in that. I, I, I guess what I'm, I just feel this sense of this is better. We have to control it and make it like this. That's and not that's, what this is that's I know, but, but, about, do you, yeah. I, but do you feel it? Yeah. Like, do you feel, yeah. So like, not anymore, because I've worked through my traumas through this collective process. I did feel that way before. And by having nurturing and it's what's amazing about what I've learned in pro-social groups is how many people arrive and say, wow, I've never experienced this before, or I've experienced this a handful of times, but so much of our lives are these coercive, manipulative environments that actually pro-social contexts, truly pro-social contexts are very rare, which means there's a lot of unlearning and a lot of trauma healing, a lot of psychological coping that needs to be managed in a loving and supportive way. And, and it's actually a lot of work. It takes a lot of time because it's very much not normal in the modern world. Yeah, and, and what I found is it's actually really fundamental, this, this healing of intergenerational trauma, which has a lot of decolonization and unlearning and is also psychosocial development is just foundational. It's so important for us to learn how to be it to each other and to do it for ourselves and to do it for each other all at the same time in a flexible and hopefully increasingly non-judgmental way, meaning it's usually more judgmental earlier and less judgmental later as we become more comfortable and relaxed in our context. That's just so fundamental. And it, it maps to this entropic agroforestry, it's centropic human relationships is creating symbiotic, mutually supportive scaffolds of development but it's unfortunately very uncommon in today's world. Hey, didn't you work with um, David Sloan Wilson and ProSocial in, in the UK? Yes, when they were introducing it, gosh, when was it? Right at the beginning of the pandemic, we did a, a one of their ProSocial courses exactly exploring the eight core design principles and looking at how we could bring it into our, our work. Um, and I found it really fascinating to take the core design principles from Ostrom and then say, how do we actually turn this into heuristics uh, that guide group dynamics? So we haven't pursued it to, to the extent that I can hear Joe has. And I, I would, for all sorts of reasons in our team and COVID and all sorts of things were going on that we didn't actually say, let's let's turn this into a practice in, in the heart of our team. But I'm, I find it fascinating that the, the again, bringing well, I, I'm enjoying this healthy tension I'm hearing, like bringing in intentionality, bringing a set of heuristics, as you said at the beginning, Nora, you know, you, you have a, a, a healthy skepticism of bringing models. Um, and I, but I'm working, so I'd love to just bring this, but I'm, I'm working in a space and I invite you to critique it or to walk around it and look at it from another perspective uh, in the same way that Joe's saying, we can bring the core design principles of Ostrom and these become a, a very valuable heuristic. I'm bringing the donut concept. Um, we're unrolling the donut. We're introducing a series of concepts 
that become a set of heuristics. And where I'm coming from with that is actually really inspired by George Lakoff's work on framing. And he focused very much on verbal framing and the power of the words we choose. Do you talk about tax relief or tax justice? And he actually mentioned in almost in passing in his book, you know, visual framing is equally important. It may in fact be more powerful, but he doesn't pursue it. He can, because he's on such a rich vein of, of the verbal framing. And I realized what I was doing was in the space of economics, using visual framing to say, look at this old diagram of supply and demand. This is the first image we're taught. Look what phenomenal impact it has on everything that follows, that that's where and how we begin. And images are so powerful because they go into our minds through into our visual cortex. And we don't tend to interrogate them in the way that we were taught to analyze and analytically pick apart words. But images, I think, can often slip past that and so deeply frame what we put at the center and what we leave at the periphery, what's visible, what's invisible. And yet I think they're a bit like, they're a kind of form of intellectual graffiti. Graffiti is very, very hard to scrub out once it's been sprayed there. It's easier to paint over it with a new mural. So that's the metaphor that I use in thinking about making sense of what it is I found myself doing. I didn't intentionally say, I will now do this, but it's like, oh, this is what I'm doing. I'm trying to replace the supply and demand, which is the, the, the first move of economics and which has such an impact on everything that follows. I'm trying to replace that with, let's start by, with a different heuristic, which is the donut or what I call an embedded economy. The economy is a, a, a social construct embedded in the rest of nature. So I, I'm bringing this to you, Nora, uh, and I invite your challenge back because I'm, I'm working from a space of let's bring valuable tools that aren't true or correct or right, as George Box very usefully said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. So I, in my, in my full subjective set of biases and unknown unknowns, propose that these might be useful. And I'll continue to do that from the place I'm standing, that I find others are finding them useful. So I'm, I'm absolutely in the world of bringing heuristics that are often very simple, models that many people can understand and it's it's uh, gets a lot of attraction it brings a lot of energy people find it irresistible so i'm going to speak to the to the value it brings and i really invite any of you in this conversation to say and yet watch out for or the concern i have around that i would just you rarely get to have this conversation so i, I really invite it Can I yeah. uh, bring up uh, something? Uh, so in our podcast, we, we often talk about, you know, what do we do, right? And I, I think this is resonant for, you know, a lot of our audience that, you know, are, are probably, you know, living in an apartment, they have a job they don't, they don't enjoy, they, they resonate with a lot of what we're discussing, but they feel stuck. Uh, they don't, they don't know what to do. And, and we often we tend to emphasize, you know, starting small, um, you know, if you can't, you don't have any place to grow, you know, living things like plants and, and trees, um, you know, get a, if you're on an apartment deck, you know, get a planter, grow a tomato. Not that that's going to like feed you during, you know, food crisis, but it's going to start this trajectory of relationality with living, living systems. Right, and it's, it, you're gonna learn and you're gonna, you know, once you do something, you discover a kind of agency that you can do the next thing and the next thing. And this also applies to 
our relationships, right? Um, how we how we think about intergenerational relationships, right? Even just for example, you know, having your you know, I'm an older millennial. Um, you know, the, for me, the idea of having some of my family members live nearby, you know, even though there's tensions in the relationship, but you know, we all love each other very much. Uh, that to me seems something that's within the domain of kind of just the common person, but can actually be something that really gets somebody on the trajectory of living into this regenerative, regenerative phenomenology, you know, of relationality with each other and with, with the natural world. Um, of course, there's also a lot of discussion of, well, growing plants on your, on your deck is one thing. Eventually, we maybe we need some kind of land reform. You can start talking about policy of like, okay, it's great that I can live on a few acres of land and steward the land. You know, it comes from a position of privilege. Um, many people are very constrained, but it's an emphasis of we will need the structural, you know, uh, we hope that these structural conditions will change to give people more capacity. But in the meantime, what can we do with the affordances that we have? You know, how can we be bursting at the seams of regenerative potential and, and phenomenology that when new affordances arise and maybe they're created through, you know, through this shifting mindset of, you know, of this process, um, how can we just, you know, move on to the next um whatever it is we don't know right but so i guess I'm, I'm i'm trying to bring this to you know a lot of our audience who again you know just might feel stuck you know uh a lot of our generation you know are very strapped financially uh you know and we think that we need more money to say let's get on some land right so that we're already in this kind of paradigm of more and more and more um, but how do we think of kind of just the very small level, you know, uh, if, if there's advice, <laughs> there's advice for, for the common folk who, who are starting to recognize and resonate with, 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 with these conversations. I think, um, uh, one of the hardest parts of the warm data course that I teach is the part where it says the rest will take care of itself and what we have to put in place so that the rest can take care of itself is not a bunch of tools. It's actually perception. Um, and I mean, I guess I just keep coming back to this because it's so easy to to perceive. I am me, you are you, we are, you know, deep down, um, what Ostrom was responding to with those principles was the eugenics and the tragedy of the commons, you know, and actually that Hardin was a eugenicist. And so when you perceive the the individual as a unit that's actually consuming resources, and you start to solve for units and resource measurements, you're down a rabbit hole of potential questions and, and researches and inquiries that are inherently built into uh, a kind of thinking that is not regenerative. 
definitively not regenerative. So um, I think that this is really serious, right? To actually perceive any other person in your life and look at them and not see, you know, with the eyes that we have been trained to see with, oh, you are a whatever. I could list all these different labels for you. You're a millennial. You're a white guy. You're a, you know, American. You're a whatever it is. You're a dad. You're a son. You're a, I could come up with all sorts of labels for you. Um, but to perceive you as a kind of galaxy of complex possibility. And, and I don't know who I can be when I'm with you. Like I could say, I, I know myself, know thyself. That was some crap, right? So it isn't about know thyself. You know, there was decades where if you just, you know, if you just become a better person and be the change, everything's going to be cool. Well, it didn't work out. It didn't work out because we're holding each other caught in this. And so, you know, in these moments, like, you know, in the pandemic or in, in other crisis situations that are popping up everywhere from personal crisis to local community crisis to ecological crisis to political crisis, you know, whatever, they're everywhere now, um, economic crisis. It's, you know, you asked Kate, what can we do? And I think the way that I ask that question is, uh, how are we going to find a way? And and that, for me, is an invitation into this realm of being able to actually improvise is one word for it. But I, I would actually m more say something along the lines of find possibilities that we had no idea we were even looking for. And so by saying that, what I'm not saying is this is a tool. What I am saying is that the entire approach changes. You know, Daniel was talking about dance with the system and, and um, how Danella, you know, when you do that, it's not that dancing with the system is the answer. It's not like, okay, now what we have to do is find the beat and we're going to like tell everybody what it is. Once we hack it, we're going to get it. And then we're going to download <laughs> how to dance with the system, right? It's, it's not that. It's the whole approach that changes. And, and so I guess, um, yeah, I guess for me, that's what's important, especially, you know, as I look at my children, I don't know what, what they're going to face. So what can I give them? How, what is the tonality of our conversation? What's the, what's the way that we are curious together? What's the way that we screw up together? What's the way that we, you know, figure out we're trapped in old, you know, epistemological double binds of existing system nonsense together? How do we, how do we hold this together? Because as these scaffoldings of, um, perception start to fall, then what we have is each other. And that's a whole ecology of possibility right there. That is, like I, I have to mm -hmm. preface this with this kind of um, 
use with caution or listen with caution because I, I, I felt myself moving into quite a dark space over these seven years, seven, years, seven weeks of feeling rather um, challenged by my daughter bringing infections home at a faster rate than my body could build immunity to them. Um, and, and so somehow one, one thing that it made me question is that something that, that Kate has um, spoken to twice, which is that I, I haven't chosen this long intention. I've just found myself in this position um, and now I'm working with it. And I've, I've actually questioned the deep motivation that made me choose this path 20 years ago. Um, and come back to that humility of what well, the, the, the question Nora was is being saying when she was talking about her dad, um, who I can uh, who can I allow you to be in a relationship with me? That's a father to a daughter, but it's also what you were doing on the land, what I was doing on the land. Joe, when when you listen to the land, you you ask that question, and the land begins to speak to you. And and so f for me, I in this and this, this is where I'm going. Like um, and why I prefaced it with this use with caution. I'm I'm a little bit in this breathing in and out between the apocalypse is near and. Um, life is much more resilient than you think. And, and there's always um, unexpectedness and um, maybe like even holding the possibility that if we bring forth the world together in conversation and in narrative, then changing the narrative and changing these organizing ideas might fundamentally help us to bring forth a fundamentally different world, which is, I think, what so much of Nora's invitation is, is about. And there's this other narrative that, like Kate was referring to, there's some people out there just calling out the, the apocalypse or calling the immediate collapse. But it, those voices are really strong at the moment. And they've, in my, they've caught me in my weak point of reflectiveness and somehow came through. And so I'm, I'm sitting with this kind of, are we bullshitting each other? Are we, are we still working on a timescale that is fundamentally mistaken because we're now at the acceleration of acceleration of the degenerative system and the collapse of everything around us. The, and, and yes, as I mean, George was describing Ernst Goethe's system, the, one, the beauty of it is it's not just working with the regenerative centrophic force of life. It also recognizes that done in the right way, human, and Joe was speaking to this once or twice, the, the, the human capacity to intervene and even be disruptive in the system can have positive or negative effects. Yeah? And, and so once you understand these nested adaptive cycles, if you want to put it into a systems framing and all that, yeah, you, you begin to realize that collapse is part of the game. But the collapse we're now in is so fundamental that some voices are saying, the Mediterranean will be uninhabitable in 20 years' time. Um, and even in five years' time, water shortages might be such that people will start a mass exodus. Just today, there was a Spanish newspaper say, saying 74% of the Iberian Peninsula is in danger of desertification. Uh -huh. All hard, cold 
data. Um, but if I let it into my vulnerable dad worried about his daughter having just too many storylines at once going on in his life, moment of vulnerability, then I'm, I can't compute whether we're still doing the right thing or we should actually all be a little bit more prepper-like. And, and I mean, Laura, you've pulled your family together in, in a farm. Um, some of that is also going in the direction. You found a place, but then we, we all, like, again, that's privilege, isn't it? Like, there's, like the, I know, and I've been invited to work with, but said, no, um, billionaires trying to create regenerative bioregions that they can block off with um, private armies when it's come to the point that now more and more people seeing it might come to. Um, all these stories about people with three level bunkers preparing for their Armageddon or the regenerative billionaires buying off large parts of land or even the degenerative pattern of lots of North Americans in different disguises moving into Central and South America, um, either because it's cheaper to retire there or whatever, uh, because the sandbox is still wider open, creating possibilities that the ones that, that you're writing on, um, Joe. All of that, <laughs> uh, I'm in this vulnerable place coming somehow close to what I hear Laura saying over and over again. It's like, how do we nourish the flexibility we don't yet know we need? She asked earlier. Wow. And that brings me in my own journey back to the work that kind of kicked me off on this living the questions and regenerative cultures thing, which was working with the way of counsel, working with a simple, simple practice of sitting in a circle around a fire, speaking about what is meaningful to us from the heart and listening from the heart. And in that ancient process, finding a new capacity to listen and to let new meaning emerge and to not find how to solve these problems, but how do we find the way? Sounds very similar, but they're fundamentally different ways of being in the world. Um, and yeah, how how urgent do you think it is? Like, like, <laughs> and also with, I mean, this is Duma optimism, Jason. You, you, your crowd must be all like, there must be loads of people thinking that um, I better get, like, particularly in America, these these worlds overlap. Like, there's there's prepper listening. There are fascists um, listening that are wanting to create their protective bioregions against the others. Like, I encourage you to listen to the conversation with Tyson Yanka Porter that, that I had re recently. Like this, this walled fortress ideology that we're hearing, that, that there's back to community that is coming from fear. Like, let's build regen villages and get Skylink and live our privileged life in Costa Rica or in Canada. Um, like shadow, shadow, shadow. Um, May I speak something to this? Yeah. Um, one thing that was a big insight for me because uh, in graduate school, I studied phase transitions and self-organizing systems. And a big part of phase transitions is that collapse is an essential and integrated part of every change. There's some kind of collapse. Collapse of order, collapse of possibility space, collapse of supports for trajectory, this collapse is always present. And when I came to Barichara here in Colombia, one of the things that I, as I constructed the history, 
and the way that I learned from the way Regenesis Group says, you know, you go in and you reconstruct the ecological and the cultural history, and then you can start to see the regenerative potentials. It was amazing to learn that people in their early 20s from this territory were swimming with river otters 20 years ago when they were five years old, and now all the waterfalls are dried up and all the rivers are dead. Which means I'm in a place of post-collapse. Post-collapse of river systems, 95 to 98% of the native ecology of this forest has been deforested in the last 80 years, and it had happened before I arrived. And I want to start there because on Sunday, we took a walk with about 30 people in the community where we were walking down into a part of the territory where several neighbors have started to do reforestation. And we were talking about how to listen to water moving into the land, to raise the water table and bring a stream bed back to life that would help to bring one of the waterfalls back to life, one of the tributaries of the river systems here. And the depth of capacity for neighbors to walk the land and just ignore private land boundaries. The ability of us all to say, wow, your private land boundary is an opportunity for us to co-create as though it didn't exist. Meaning for us to feel into the patterning of connection of water moving across the landscape. And this was a mixture of expats, of um, Colombians, but not from here, and Colombian campesinos from here. And the thing that was unifying us, something Eleanor Ostrom described in Governing the Commons, is shared identity and purpose. Shared identity and purpose are fundamental. And they are very much in the space of perception. They're very much in that space of how do we cultivate and nurture and evolve shared identity and purpose. And to come into a place where the river died 50 years ago, the waterfalls have been dry for 15 years or longer. The rivers are dead, they're all dead. Not a single river in this territory that's got life in it. And what do we do? What's amazing is there's a lot we can do by reconstructing or at least being familiar with 7,000 years or more of human habitation of the indigenous cultures and learning from the local ecology. And so what I found by recognizing that I was in a post-ecological collapse and post-genocide, you know, conquistador dynamic in this part of Colombia, that there was a space in which to recover ancestral lines, but pull them into the future, not pull them into the past. We're not moving to some utopian past. We're just looking at the lines where the rivers and the streams used to run, where the wellsprings have gone dry, and asking ourselves, what would it mean for us to create a patterning of relationship that restores the watershed? And I think this way of sitting into the reality of the collapse, like in this case, the collapse is the collapse of hydrological flow within a small drainage that's about a thousand hectares in size. It's small because we're in the Andes and a thousand hectares is small in this landscape. But being post-collapse is an essential part of the awareness, but it's post-collapse of what? In this case, it's post-collapse of a vibrant ecological and hydrological system as evidenced by the lines of previous rivers and streams and dry well springs and the lack of ecology in the place with the deforested and eroded parts of the land. And of course, the impoverishment of campesino mindsets that don't recognize their inherent wealth and the fragmentation of loss of uh, cultural knowledge of working with the native ecology. So that all of that is very present and the wounds are fresh and open. Um, 
is also with the violence of Colombia that's very present. But, but what's interesting is the realization that water is what's unifying us. It's actually the call of water. The river wants to be healed in some deep sense. Humans are feeling it's not just for me, it's for this larger living ecology because I'm a part of it. Even if I've personally only been there for two and a half years, I can feel it as a human being alongside the local people. So there really is something to accepting collapse in some very practical ways. Like this is a collapse of a hydrological systems health. And we're post collapse in that sense. And then sitting in that and saying, so what would it mean to produce the affordances of the system to regenerate itself? And here we have to create cooperation across private boundary lines because it's private land at this point in time. And we treat it like a game and an illusion to relax the, the realm of perception. Um, but the collapse part of it, I find it to be integrative and liberating if it's held in a, a dynamic systems perspective. Um, we can bring that river back to life because we acknowledge it's died. And so we're midwifing and hospicing the same system. And that's, and that's because time is both the future and the, and the past or in the present in a way and potentials, which I think speaks really nicely to what you were saying, Nora, about the imaginative space, the unknown surprises that don't fit in our linear thinking. Can the river be dead and alive? This isn't a Schrodinger's box question. It's a real practical question. Because people can't live here without the water. Um, and they're both true in a way with enough flexibility. I wanna respect everyone's time. Uh, I think we're going to wrap up pretty soon, but I want to give everybody, if they would like, opportunity to say one more thing. Any any last words um, to, to send us off with? But wait, we haven't heard from Kate about Kate's advice to the world. Oh, well, we have to hear from Kate. We have to hear from Kate. I want to hear my from advice Kate. to the world. Wow. Is that I mean, what I... it, That was kind of the question. Oh, going back, okay. Um, oh gosh, I, I I don't have advice to the world. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I don't think I, any of us really do. We just we love you, Kate. We love you. So, <laughs> what? Actually, I was really enjoying hearing Joe talk in the great detail about this system of which you're one of the people regenerating, and I, I was wondering how that feels differently from the voice I heard Daniel speaking in before, which I've not, and thank you for your vulnerability today, Daniel, speaking from there. And how, how, how may it feel differently? Joe, you've arrived in a place that you then maybe then discover or that has collapsed and then you've arrived and, and then you say, so, so what can we do from here? And how differently that may feel to someone who's seeing a place that they, of which they've been a part in that process of collapse. And so I was just noticing the difference of how you can hold the possibility of regenerating mm -hmm. something you've, you've arrived, it's, a, it's on the floor and how can you help, help its systems come back together again? And just the emotion within of, of what that feels like differently from Daniel saying, is it true, you know, the Iberian Peninsula is going to be uninhabitable? How do, what do I do now as it's collapsing? So I was thinking about the psychology of those, those places. But I'll just say that, so in the work I'm doing, as I said, because we, 
we go where the energy is. It's people who choose, and, and I'll connect back. I was inviting a questioning of me saying, I'm, I'm introducing models and they're quite um, heuristically simple and bold and aiming to be irresistible to give people something that they say, that's what I can be for in the midst of all this stats and the data about decline and collapse, which is so overwhelming, there's something I can be for. And, and some people are drawn to that. And so we, we are working with those who say, this is helping me. This is a, this is a, this is a tool that helping me that I'm going to interpret it and put into context and put into practice in, in where I am. And they, and they love the fact as Daniel said, and thank you for understanding the tools we bring, uh, you totally adapt it to make sense of it where you are. So I'm working with those people and what's what's I find people are energized because they can take these concepts, they see what others are doing and they go flip it up another way and, and come back with their reinterpretation of it. And actually to, to echo what Daniel was saying about there's a meeting, there's two groups meeting where you are, you were looking out the window and you're like, they're out there somewhere and how can I not be there? But actually it's wonderful that I'm not there. I had a similar experience recently. Leeds City launched their donut city portraits and they unrolled the donut and uh, I wasn't there. They ran this wonderful session and some friends, some organization from, from Birmingham were there. And the inspiration that was happening between these two groups from the Birmingham group and the Leeds group. And it's, it's, it's got a life of its own. It's got it's this wonderful feeling of seeing the energy and the inspiration rolling and people are taking it and making it and, and sharing it back. So what can you do if you, if, if you find inspiration in whether it's having a plant on your porch or engaging in groups, play with that energy that just regenerates itself and, and creates these one, these cycles that keeps me here. So, and I'm just going to go back to what Daniel was saying, you know, perhaps, you know, is, is it all, is it collapsing and am I kidding myself by carrying on and holding this possibility? So the way I think of that, Daniel, is I don't think anything would be helped if I too went over there and added my voice to pointing at that iceberg. What, 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 what is that going to add to the story at this point? I, I, I'll just stand here and keep facing that way. So there, there could be another direction over there. You guys do that. I'm just going to keep holding this because it's the most valuable thing that I can imagine doing right now. And it'd be crazy for us all to run off in that direction. So this is big teamwork and there are many places to hold. Thank you so much for saying that because what, I think both Nora and I share the same love and the, share, the same tendency to get triggered by some of the way that Joe formulates what he does. But I deeply, believe that what Joe is intentionally trying to do is 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 amazing and and and, and helping lots of people and, and in a similar way I there are people out there that are just trying to ram this collapse story down people's throats in a kind of othering way of if if you're not with us then then you just don't get it yeah? and and I find that is really destructive like I find it so like, yes, it's an important narrative. And yes, you've got many important points. And if we sit around the campfire, Jambendel, we will probably laugh and agree on, on a number of things. But but this kind of energy that is trying to divide, be divisive, to, to basically say, these people haven't got it yet, is, is yet again saying, like, 
we've got the solution, or in this case, we've got the solution. We've realized there aren't any solutions. It's too late. Uh, and th but then you get the conversation about what is just collapse. And that would bring you straight back to the donut and say, well, you basically ignore collapse and you work on the donut and just stop yipping on about that more people should get it, that collapse is near. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, thank you so much because I, I need to dig myself out of this slightly pessimistic hole and I'm almost there. And this has been really healing. Thank you, everyone. I think I think our <laughs> last few comments have, have really in a nice nutshell defined for me what doomer optimism is, right? Like it's it's in that order for a reason. It's it's acknowledging the doomer is playful, playful, as playful as you can be with, with this topic, acknowledging the collapse, but but realizing that fatalism there's nobody any good. Uh, fatalism in terms of, well, I'm just gonna be depressed and play video games in my room until the walls come crashing down and the food stops showing up. Um, that does nobody any good. And so, and for me, it's also, there's kind of a two double meaning to doom or optimism. One is kind of what we're talking about of, well, let's still see what the possibility space is even until, until the bitter end, if, 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 if that's what it is for, from our, you know, uh, anthropomorphic point of view. Uh, but it's also existential in the sense that um, even we're all doomed in the long term as biological organisms, if we want to view it that way. And so it's, a, it's an existential of, you know, all living things pass away and make room for the next, you know, for the, for the cycle of life. Uh, and but at the same time, I'm looking out my window right now and I'm looking at this tree. Right. I'm looking at these birds flying around. Right now, it's it's tangible, it's present, it's, it's it's lovely, it's beautiful, right? And so even if, you know, tomorrow was my last day, the optimism is, you know, it is right now. It's 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 you know the presence right now, which is, you know, in 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 a, in a very kind of spiritual sense, it's transcendent of time, right? It's it's the eternal now, and so that has a kind of double meaning for me. That just to give some background on that term for me. <laughs> I I recently fell in a hole and um, broke my ankle and I went to the emergency room and they put this bright pink cast on my foot and um, as I was sitting there looking at this bright pink cast I, I realized you know in the generation of Barbie dolls that there was no emergency Barbie like where was emergency Barbie? Like this, there's got to be emergency Barbie, and and I started to actually get into it. You know, I was stuck sitting there, and I'm sitting, you know, just riffing, going, "Bunker Barbie!" Like we need Bunker Barbie. This is a this is a great concept, and and Bunker Barbie, she can have a boyfriend because Barbie always has to have a boyfriend, and you know, it's totally heteronormative stuff we're dealing with there, but and Bunker. Barbie's boyfriend could be Crypto Craig. And and Bunker Barbie and Crypto Craig, they're like furnishing their, you know, three-level bunker with regenerative um ag underground. And they're they they've got it all done in, you know, pink Gucci furniture underground. But but what <laughs> what struck me in the midst of this riffing is that, oh shit, it's the same mentality. And that somehow, you know, the whole like, we have to, I have to get mine for the apocalypse is really kind of 
the same concept as the sort of Barbie consumerism, but with very different shoes. And so Bunker Barbie has, you know, she's got her combat boots and pink camo, but she's just to play a little bit, like we have to like recognize that, that even in our conceptions of what to do in this moment, we are still wonderfully entertaining and ridiculous. And, and I think that that's important. Like we, all of these super serious, you know, whether they're models or political position points or whatever it is, just there's a point at which we have to just watch the show and be in it at the same time and recognize that amidst the incredible violence that is taking place, there is this inane understanding that what we're perceiving as how life is really is and in fact there's room to imagine it in another way right it's there um and i think it's inside all of us all the time so i you know in a way it's terrifying and it's stuck and it's impossible and it's game over and we're past the thresholds and in another way it's like well here we go Solar punk is so yesterday. It's bunky bar bunker Barbie punk now. Bunker Barbie punk. I love it. <laughs> yes, something that's coming up for me here because I'm in the Andes, and the indigenous cultures of the Andes are incredible, including the the Kogi tradition that's up on Santa Marta, um, at the heart of the world. And this concept, which has a, a really unfortunate Spanish translation, they call it pagamentos, which is like payments, when actually it should be better translated as gifts of gratitude. But in many cultures, many cultures in Latin America and pre-conquest uh, cultures, there's the recognition that Mother Earth gave life to us and we need to give gifts of gratitude. We give them to the rivers and we give them to the rocks and we give them to what, wherever gratitude should go. I think this is a really fundamental thing that at the core of the health and well-being of the Kogi people is gratitude. And there's something about me getting mine to survive, that whole mentality of never getting mine, and so I need to get it. I'm talking about turning that completely inside out. But you never didn't get yours. Actually, none of it was ever yours to begin with. Exactly. It was all on loan to you by Mother Earth. It's so powerful. Yeah. And who is you? That's the yeah. that's the other bit that once you flip it to life as a planetary process, I'm always <laughs> I can never find um that quote like you your dad saying, Nora, um that sometimes I catch myself um even believing that I am separate from what I'm looking at. And and it's this understanding that I find is is so at the core of indigenous knowledge and at the core of rediscovering ourselves as indigenous to life. Because the, 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 the shadow side of, of this back to indigenous knowledge is, 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 can also create another separation of versus indigenous versus non-indigenous. And that's this, how, how do we actually come back to our indigeneity to, I mean, the, the wisdom traditions of old, I've spoken of the seer and the seen are one. Um, that, that understanding that 
perception, like I not not I said the perception, the rest takes care of itself. Um, like how and, and Jason spoke to it with this appreciation of what is love for the beauty that we can find in, in every day. Maybe, maybe that's really what we need to come back to more, is celebrating more deeply the, the depth of our embeddedness in living context. And, and, and this is one bit that like we won't have time to unpack, but that I wanted to talk about and just want to name briefly, which is something that I've reflected on lately a lot is that with globalization and this also the globalization of the knowledge sphere there was so much to know so many disciplines emerged so much broadening of knowledge but we the, the basic knowledge just yesterday I was on on jenny anderson's um regenerative placemaking journey and and pe people had just done the the the, the beautiful bioregional quiz that um comes from this this book called home um, where it's, it all asks questions around when when do the birds come to roost? Um, what are native and non-native species? Um, like just simple fundamental questions about the places we're embedded in. And and people were reflecting on the fact that nobody got, got a good score. And, and I've known this quiz for 15 years and I still don't really, if I'm honest, get a brilliant score when, when I'm hard on myself or saying, okay, let's do this quiz again. Um, and... And what I'm wondering, and it goes in the context of where to focus, is maybe we need to find ways of also valuing this way of relating to place in a deeper way. And um, it also relates to like Tyson Yankaporta telling me the other day that, that he's working on a project of how to, over 300 years, communicate to the, like the flexibility we don't net, not, not yet know we will need in the future of nomadic cultures, of what it actually means, because we've, we've stopped being nomadic in so places and repressed any nomadic culture's value to the point that we, we're losing that knowledge of how to be nomadic again. And actually, if you look at it sort of historically, that's when we were least impactful on the planet, when we were gardeners of the ecosystems that brought us forth and were moving through them in that pulsing way, the way that Ernst Goetsch moves through his centropic agroforestry uh, um, uh, system to disrupt not all the time, but temporarily. And yeah, um, I'm completely opening up another sack of beans here um, and I'll shut up. I'm so glad you brought that up. It's, it's really just, it's vital because it's, um, it's, there's a dark side to eco-localism and we're seeing it and it switches into, this is our place, our land, our, this is the, and that is not a welcoming place of, uh, of a changing world. And, um, this, this return to the the wisdom of the nomad is really really important because people are moving not because they want to move and um you know the idea of let's let's fix their homes where they are well that was fantastic 40 years ago but that didn't happen um so 
like it or not, people are going to be in nomadic position. They already are. It's already, we're already in it. So it's not so good to have these um, kind of encrusted um, ideas of localism. I, it, it scares me. Uh, one thing related to that is, uh, remember when I learned about the Milpa, which is the agroecology system of the Mayan people. It's lasted for 8,000 years. For a long time, I thought the Milpa was stationary. Hmm. Like, here's your Milpa. Turns out the Milpa has 12 stages and any family in the Milpa tradition has multiple sites they live in in different times of the year. And relative to wherever each site is, all 12 stages of the Milpa are available within walking distance because there are different people managing different milpas, but they're all part of the same extended network. And that means you can access all, because every each stage, it's an agroforestry system that every stage produces different human benefits. You know, cultivated crops early on, medicinal plants and textiles midway, construction materials later in a 20 to 25 year cycle. And when I realized it was a patchwork quilt of moving across the landscape, it shifted everything. It's like, mm -hmm. oh my God, this isn't a stationary system on my land. This is a way of relating to all my neighbors, human and non-human across the whole territory. Mm -hmm. And that's much more like truly indigenous, which the Milpa is. And Fascinating so, that it's 12 stages. Like uh, Tyson was speaking that the, the, the Aboriginal people that he works with and that is part of um, have an eight, um, season cycle and move but but you will find that pattern everywhere and but then again like bringing it into this modern world like with eight billion people we're not like yes we are all going to be on the move because of climate change and ecosystems collapse and all those kind of things but um yeah it's um how, how do we bring that that kind of living with the landscape dynamically over periods of time. And even if there are, if there's a cataclysmic century in between, how do we rescue that way of being into the distant future? It's, it's interesting you mentioned that because last night we were having a design session to create a learning center in Centropic Agroforestry. And we have the first six months of work. Basically we've done one workshop, we have one established site, and we're about to do three more sites in the next six months. And the idea is to create a patterning across the territory and where we select those sites, where there are anchors of neighbors already collaborating, while also workshops are being done in other territories throughout the larger region and starting to invite exchanges with the people who are learning in the other regions so that we can attempt to pattern that. So we can basically attempt to say, there will be agroforestry systems in multiple places with different focus depending on, because we're in a place where there's tremendous elevation change. You know, the, you know, the ecotype in the canyon below is different from the higher mountains and they're 10 kilometers away. So this patterning at the territorial scale creates a tremendous potential of resilience, but only if we go up to the tens or hundreds of kilometer scale. And so I think it's really important to, uh, to hold, as, as Kate said, the regenerative design part Recognizing design has all the caveats that Nora was talking about, which is a delicate dance of humility, as Daniel said, but that we can't attempt to pattern it. And we pattern it off what we've learned from indigenous 
traditional knowledge systems. Hmm. Are we getting tired? <laughs> <laughs> I am, if I'm honest. But this was wonderful and really like we, we could do this um, every now and then if, if our busy schedules allow. <laughs> And I think it's um, it's really great to have this space to just wander and really not know what it is that's going to come up because, uh, I, like I was saying in the beginning, we each have our things that we have certainly, you know, said again and again and again and again. So it's nice to be, you know, fresh and raw and free and um, yeah. Yes, I, I really appreciate it. And I love all of you guys. So it's, you know, that's the basis. From there we play. We love you too, Do Nora. <laughs> yeah, thank you all for this face space and and the vulnerabilities that come up and, and really, really, really appreciated the discussion. Yeah, it's um, an, honor, an honor for me. Again, I think I've known about all of you longer than, you know, for some of us we just met. Uh, so this is a real honor and yeah, I would, I would love uh, whatever platform, you know, I would love there to be a space of, of ongoing wandering and uh, intertwining. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, me too. Thank we you. should do it again. So yeah. we'll, we'll take a break. We'll think about it. And then we'll all, you know, four hours from now, we'll all think, ah, oh, I should have said. <laughs> <laughs> take care, everybody. And stay well and, and take care of health. It's time to do that. Yes. Be well and talk to you all soon. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye.